Hello, 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 and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So today is one of my favorite episodes yet because one of my favorite people to follow on social media in relation to nutrition, training, and just a no BS approach. But there's something kind of I've been working on really, really hard and long hours and something on the background that has actually been helped to be actually be created by some of my actual clients. And it's something that's being, I'm designing it with my clients at the minute or some of my clients at the minute, that it's gonna be something new that's coming for you guys in April is when it is going to be ready to go. But the if you keep your eyes out, you will see things starting to launch in March when things will be ready to ramp up. And I am super, super excited for this. I have worked so hard to get this right. Long hours, my eyes need a rest. But I'm super, super excited for when this is going to be ready. And I genuinely think it's going to be better and bigger than I ever thought and that it could be and will ever be. And I'm so thankful to some of my clients who are taking the time out of their busy days, lives to help me to design what's coming up. I can't really can't release any more information than that. I'll get in trouble if I do. So I, I hope you guys keep an eye out on that. And so today's episode with Emma. So Emma Story Gordon is a nutritionist. She is a PT. She is an amazing coach. She works with a lot of people who are trying to improve their relationship with food, get away from that yo-yo dieting background, the the BS that's a lot out there as well. And we talk about how to get that the power of trying to get away from the weighing scales, and the kind of a lot one of the big things that a lot of people can say to themselves is should we have those foods in the house or I can't have those foods in the house? We finally address what the answer to that is. One of the other things that Emma speaks about, which is kind of like made me think when I read the post back in January was she says that one of the things that we've been focusing on is the wrong thing for fat loss. And it's, it makes you think. And we also talk about one topic that I've never covered before, which is why is it harder for small women to lose weight and what can they do? We talk about her method of three to one we also talk about that bad days will have a bigger impact on your results over the good days. And we talk about what does successful dieting mean or look like to her. And it's it's a, it's an incredible episode. And it's going to be one of those that's going to resonate with so many of you. It's going to resonate with a lot of you. So if you want to work with Emma, click on the link in the show notes. If you want to download Emma's journal, which I'd highly recommend, click on the link in the show notes. And if you want to work on her with, with the kind of group coaching that she does with Chloe Madley, then click on the link on that as well. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode with Emma Story Gordon. Emma, how are we? I am very well. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for for coming on. I think uh, so. Yeah, I think like I think you were on like three years ago. I think we realized um, about the podcast, and I think we were kind of talking about various different things then. But I think this episode is going to be a lot more mindsety because I think that's definitely something that you're very into with kind of eiq and your own clients as well on the posts and the contents and the podcast that you put out you're very busy uh so for anyone who isn't aware of what you do and who you are can you give us a little bit of an elevator pitch for who you are i hate these but <laughs> my name is emma i am primarily a coach but i also run eiq with amelia who i think you just had on recently so we run EIQ together. That's a nutrition course for personal trainers trying to get coaches to be able to serve their clients as best as possible. And kind of, as you mentioned there, a lot of what we focus on isn't just the science of it. It is the science of it, but then it's the application of that. 
and how you know the science might say one thing but behavior change says another thing right like calorie calculators are simple but actually human behavior not quite so simple so you know the whole it's as simple as a calorie deficit becomes a little bit more complex when you realize that humans eat for reasons other than just how many calories that they need so yeah i run eiq with melia and then i also run a mentorship to help personal trainers build their businesses that's called af mentors and I run numerous coaching programs, have a couple of coaches working for me. I run a big group coaching program with Chloe Maidley. We've had 6,000 women go through that. So I've learned a hell of a lot. We were just saying that before, actually. You know, it's been three years since I've come on. I've learned so much in the last three years. So, yeah, I'm excited to be here. That's a little bit about me. And that's, yeah. Do you sleep? Uh, no, not, not, not actually big on sleep. I think the last time we spoke, I think the I think you were recovering from back surgery. Or clo- sim- like I think it was around then. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, so I did have back surgery. It is a bit better. So interestingly, I just got an, an MRI recently because I had a bit of a flare up, and it's actually been fine. So I got like booked in for the MRI about six months ago. I just had it, and that over those six months, it's actually been all right. But the MRI is really bad. It's like you have two protruding discs. One right. of them is in the nerve socket. So it should be causing me, it like technically should be causing me a lot of pain, which is a bit scary because you're like, at any point <laughs> I could probably go. But at the moment I'm not in pain. So let's just roll with that. Jeez, yeah, that's, that's, and you're, yeah, that's quite a, yeah, the MRI will definitely show up the proper things. That's quite scary. That's quite a, hopefully the pain isn't too bad when it, I don't want it to get bad in general, but hopefully you can kind of get sorted before it does. Um, there's a lot to kind of talk through and a lot of it's kind of the mindset around food, around mindset, around dieting, around things, because unfortunately there's so much BS and so much misinformation out there. And one of the things that kind of comes from various different mainstream clubs that are out there and society and all these kind of stuff is the power of the actual weighing scales that kind of comes in. What advice have you got for someone to kind of get away from that actual power of the weighing scales of what it actually holds over the individual? This is honestly, I think this is one of the biggest problems that people have. And I know it seems like almost ridiculous because you could be doing everything right and legitimately losing body fat. But because of what the scale says and because of your belief around what that means, i.e. that you're not losing body fat or that you're not making progress, And then your response to that, which is usually one of two things, either giving up because you're trying really hard and it's not working, which I totally understand, or dropping your calories really low, which inevitably means you can't stick to them and then you give up. So like neither of those options are going to get you results. But it's mad to think that, you know, it's actually your belief around what the scales mean that is the issue. So I think part of it's education, as in reminding people that, short-term fluctuations on the scales are not representative of changes in body composition and they physically cannot be like I was talking to someone yesterday who's like I put on two pounds since yesterday like I'm absolutely distraught and I'm like this is great news if you told me you put on two pounds over the month I'd be like that very much could be body fat if you put on two pounds overnight it is literally impossible if you've even been vaguely sensible on your diet for that to be body fat So it's helping people understand that a bit and then maybe zooming out and being like, the only reason that I get you to weigh yourself is to look at trends over time, not daily fluctuations. In fact, sometimes I'll have people weigh themselves every single day 
to prove that even when they stick to their calories, their weight will fluctuate always. Like there's no getting away from it. Like it will happen. So weirdly and kind of paradoxically, sometimes getting people to weigh themselves more actually improves their relationship with the scales because they can accept that I know I stuck to everything over the last week, but my weight has still gone up and down. That's totally normal. And then an approach I take with my own clients is just to kind of take that away from them as in, I worry about the outcome. That's my job. I'm your coach. If you've told me you've got this problem or you no, sorry, you've got this goal, I will worry about getting you there. All you have to do is worry about the process. So focus on, or not even worry about, but focus on the process. Yeah. So like, these are the things that I know will help you get to that goal. You focus on ticking those boxes. I will worry about if the scale's going up or down. Like if I'm concerned, we'll change something at the moment. I'm not concerned. So you don't need to change anything. And just take that element away from them and let me focus on that. One of the things I've kind of spoken with a few clients that are kind of struggling with that element of scales, obviously there's people who have eating disorders and I'm not talking to those people that were kind of, that are listening to this. Majority of the people who are talking to this are people who are maybe struggling or yo-yo dieters and stuff. So it's kind of like stepping onto the scales more frequently is one thing. But the other thing that I've kind of maybe said to a few clients is, step onto the scales faster after you've gone to the bathroom first thing in the morning and then in the next hour hour and a half drink two pints of water and then step onto the scales again and you'll notice it goes up you've done nothing wrong all you've drank is two liter, two pints of water which is a liter of water and you can see the almost a light bulb go off in the head it's like i've actually done nothing wrong here this is out of my control my control is what i can do and it's just it almost as a as kind of like a proverbial weight lifted off their shoulders by kind of recognizing it's not that is the belief system is it kind of pushed on people so much as it was in the past like because it has come from other people has come from other clubs and society and media for such a long time do you think that shift is still as relevant as it was or do you think it's shifting a little bit I mean, I think that's a great tip. And I used to do that when I worked in person, like I'd have someone standing on the scales and then I'd give them like a 1.5 litre bottle of water and I'd be like, what's happened? And it's like, yeah, you, you're hydrated, right? It's not body fat, yeah. that's strange. Do I think it shifted? I hope so for the next generation. I primarily work with women who are probably exposed to like mostly Slimming World type clubs where there was this like huge emphasis on the scales. So like anyone kind of 30 plus like you've grown up with that. I hope that it's changing. I don't know for sure that it is. Um, there's there's definitely more good information out there, but I'd also say there's more bad information. <laughs> it's like, hard to apply that information to you because a lot of people would kind of say, well, I know the scale is going to go. I know all this, but I can't apply it to myself. Yeah. Because the I, belief system is still there. I think that's where... You can use techniques like from therapy for that. So like one is the ABC model, which is like, now I can't remember what the acronyms are. But basically it's your belief about what the scales mean that is causing the consequence of that. So is it like action, whatever, anyway, something that's triggering you. So stepping on the scales and then your belief about what that means, i.e. I'm not losing body fat causes the response right so if you can change the belief you'll change your response and even just like breaking things down like that for people and then like it makes them question like why do i think this and you're right because often just telling someone that the scales don't measure body fat 
isn't enough for them to change their relationship with the scales. So it's a little bit less um, logical than that. And with that, sometimes I'll just say to people, don't weigh yourself for 30 days, just focus on the process. And then you can weigh yourself again and see what's happened. But I think for a lot of people, that would really help because then at the end of the week, if you're assessing your week, you're not saying, did I lose weight or not? You're saying, did I hit the targets that I tried to hit this week? Like, did I get my steps in? Did I get my workouts in? Did I stay within my calories? That should be the definition of a successful week, not the scales. And if you focus on that, the scales take care of themselves, but you can't directly control the scales. So there's no point worrying about something you can't directly control. You can just focus on, okay, what are the actions I can take today that I know are going to result in fat loss, if that's my goal, and keep your emphasis there. Is the control almost a thing like that you're afraid of what other people are going to think? Because that's the first thing when you see someone, it's kind of like you almost intentionally or unintentionally, you judge someone within two, three seconds. I can't remember the exact stat of whatever it is. But it's that control element of controlling, caring what other people think. And that's projected onto that piece of plastic that's on that floor. I don't know, because no one knows what you weigh. Yeah, you know, you're not around being but like, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of projected onto the, the other person that's potentially you're talking to in conversation or when you're out and about. Do you mean more how somebody looks as opposed to what they weigh? Yeah. Yeah, but I guess that, I mean, that's a whole different conversation because it's really got nothing to do with the scales then, does it? It's like, okay, if you're uncomfortable with the way that you look, then that would be... It's not going to fix it. Yeah. As in, yeah, the scales, there's definitely not the perspective on the scales. But sometimes the the two can be linked, but they're not always linked. Sometimes it's an inner, inner, there could be grief, there could be trauma, there could be elements of a lot of self-esteem or self-worth stuff kind of going on and CBT or therapy and stuff like that is... Generally, the recommendation, what, but a lot of people don't want to do that because it's like, no, they, they get overwhelmed or they guess it's just too uncomfortable. They don't, they're not ready for that kind of step. But it's like, well, when we, when will be some, when someone will be ready? When, when is that going to happen? So it's kind of chicken and egg a little bit. Um, and a really practical thing about the scales as well that works extremely well for some people is a lot of people have been fixated on a certain number yeah. because they used to weigh 60 kilograms, right? And this is so simple, but sometimes if you just change it to pounds or vice versa, like I I used to weigh X pounds and they always have this number in their head, but then you just change the metric metric that you're using. People don't have the same emotional attachment to it, even though they could literally just do basic maths and change it back, but they don't have that feeling. And I actually did this with myself. So post back surgery, I'd put on about 32 pounds when I had my bad back. And I didn't really want to know what I weighed in kilograms because I always weighed myself in kilograms. So actually I didn't know, like I decided not to do the maths in my head. And I was like, I probably know roughly, but like, I didn't really want to think about it. And then I lost weight and I just looked at the pounds and I just really honestly helped so much with just looking at direction. Cause I didn't know what any of those weights meant. I didn't know that like, that's the way I used to weigh when I was rowing here at this time or doing this or whatever like there was no correlation for me so sometimes that works and it's such an easy win if it does i think yeah i think i think i know some people can get bogged down and like oh i was this amount of stone but i think that sort of little trick of maybe maybe changing the kg you're changing it depends could help you um but i think it's also important to as emma has said which is taking those averages and 
if you're someone with a menstrual cycle comparing your like weeks with your like weeks i think that's also really really important i know people can kind of know what the information is but sometimes find it very difficult to kind of like step away and use the logical brain and saying right this is actually what's going on but if you look at what are you doing everything you possibly can and looking at it as an, a process rather than, or looking at your actions rather than complete process it's a hell of a lot easier and it becomes a lot less personally you become a lot less attached to the actual the metrics themselves it's it's very it's very kind of like it's been rammed home for so long it's particularly if you're kind of like in your 30s 40s 50s or 60s it's been like it's been part of your like diet culture or slimming clubs or whatever maybe they've been part of your life for so long and it's been what you taught from a young age so it can be hard to drop and another thing that kind of people can struggle to drop is the next segue into the next question which is i can't have those foods in the house where do you stand on this because there's either there's two metrics of not having any of the food in the house or there's the metric of exposure to the food in the house yeah and then there's somewhere in between which is yeah. obviously where I'm going to be right so yeah. I think I think the big thing here is I'm big on curating your environment so I speak to a lot of people who are like I just don't have any willpower and then you talk to them about like the environment that they live in and they're like oh yeah like we did like what's your food environment like at home oh there's always chocolates out there's always biscuits out there's always you know I'll speak to someone and they're like I've got no willpower and actually it's after Christmas and there's literally quality streets or surrounded them in the office. And I'm like, of course you don't have willpower if you're exposed to that all the time. It's not a lack of willpower. It's that anyone would struggle with temptation when you've surrounded yourself with temptation. So I'm very much a fan of like curating an environment that's going to lead to success for you. Like if weight loss is your goal, do I think you should have lots of chocolate at home? No. However, do I think you should have none at home and have an inability to have any at home ever and it would cause huge amount of stress and just eat it all if it was home yes but like the intent behind that matters so like if the intent is well there's no point having it because i don't intend to eat it at the moment because i want to lose body fat and i will enjoy some chocolate but i'm going to enjoy it when i'm having coffee with one of my mates fine and i'm not going to have it at home when i'm most likely to overeat in the evening that's totally fine but it's whether it has control over you I think is the main thing like if you're like I'm scared to have chocolate in my house because I will eat it then that thing has control over you and I think that's something you should work on if like me you're just like well you know if I if I don't really want to consume that much chocolate why would I have it readily available doesn't make any sense right yeah I think a lot of a lot of people will kind of resonate with what you said particularly after Christmas of having those quality street box of roses or whatever in the house or as you said the environment that could be that maybe the partner or the kids are always bringing sweets into the house and you're kind of like well how do you have that conversation or approach that because you don't want to come across of like uh I'm on another diet or I you may feel awkward socially awkward already and you don't want to bring that to your relationships which are closer to you how do you approach that topic with other people i don't so i don't think you need to tell people that you're on okay. a diet i think it's i i mean slightly different if it's like your partner where yeah. you might say, i've got this goal i'd really like you to support me with it can we make sure that when we get a takeaway it's just once a week and it's a bit healthier like i really would appreciate your support fine if it's like your work colleagues i just wouldn't mention it nobody else needs to know but i would set so in examples like that, where you can't change your environment, so you don't want to be like, everybody in the office, I'm on a diet, nobody bring in chocolate, nobody do this, blah, 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 like that. You don't need to draw that kind of attention to yourself, but you can set yourself rules 
And I would set those rules before you're in that situation. So it might be something like, when I'm at work, I only eat the snack that I've bought in, which is like a few of my favorite things or like the two or three snacks that I have. But that's all I have at work. Like I only eat the things I've bought in. I'm not going to eat the chocolates that are surrounding me. Fine. Like once you make that choice once and you commit to it a hundred percent, rather than what most people do is commit to it like 98% with the 2% being the chance that you can just change your mind or it's, that's what causes decision fatigue because it's you debating with yourself, but one won't hurt. Right. It won't, but like the mentality that one won't hurt will mean that that ends up being numerous things. And then that does start to add up and start to have an impact on your outcome if you just commit to something 100%, you don't need to do it again. And the example I always give of this is like people I know who are lifelong or maybe not lifelong from when they decided like vegans or vegetarians, they don't make a choice at every single meal to be a vegan or a vegetarian. They made that choice once, actually 10 years ago. They never make it again. So I think having quite like hard rules on yourself of just like, I just don't do that. Like I used to have a rule where I didn't eat after dinner. Like I'd have a cup of tea and then I was like, well, I don't like, I don't eat food after dinner. Now I'm a little bit more flexy with it, but generally I still don't. And the point about that and now that I'm a bit more flexible with it is that once you set it hard and do it for a period of time, then actually you can have flexibility with it, but it's like the discipline first. And then that becomes kind of habitual to you. Like I don't often think about eating after dinner, probably like, People don't often think about eating in the middle of the night, right? Like it's not, it's not something that goes through my head. So I generally don't, but like, Hey, now and again at Christmas, if we're all having a mince pie or something, fine. I'm not mega strict with it. Same with like eating around the office. You might be like, right for 30 days, I'm just going to get in the routine. I'm going to train myself that I don't eat things around the office that I haven't bought in. Then after 30 days, you might be like, Oh yeah, I do kind of fancy a little bit of this but you have the control over that and you're much better at saying yes and saying no and making choices that are in line with your goals. I can hear an awful lot of kind of clients saying the stuff, particularly around the office and in the kind of like particularly in the, maybe the canteen or the cafeteria at at work or whatever it may be, because that's normally where someone comes in with a salad box saying I'm being good today or whatever it is. But a lot of like what you were kind of saying that it's kind of like fully committing to it. But then there's kind of the other element of peer pressure could be coming into it about wanting to fit in. So how do you balance wanting to fit in and wanting what you want to do? How do you become so clear on what you want to do? I'm quite hard. So as in like, I I couldn't give a crap for pleasing other people. Like if if I need to take to please someone else, like the only person I generally do that for is my dad because his love language is like making a nice dinner. And I can see that it would upset him if I didn't eat it, right? But do I care if Jenny in the office wants me to eat some cake? It doesn't align with my goals. Like, no, I don't. And I think like remembering what you want from the situation, you don't have to be rude about it. You can just say, oh no, I'm full. Thanks. Like, or like, I'm, I'm okay right now. It looks lovely though. Like maybe I'll have some tomorrow. I don't know. Like do whatever you want. But I think rather than a lot of people just kind of flow through life, people pleasing yeah. or not really making any choices. Like, did you actually choose to eat that cake? Or was it just like imposed on you and then before you knew it, you'd eaten it, right? And that's like a small example of that, which probably isn't very consequential. But when you add that up over time, like did you actually choose your lunch or was it the easiest option that was just there? Like are you making choices in your life or are you just going with the flow? 
and sometimes that can be bigger. So like, I definitely, I don't regret going to uni, but I didn't choose to go to uni. It was just what everybody did after school. So that's what I did. Right. And there's so much of life that's like that. It's like, oh, all my mates are getting married. So like, if you've been with your partner for five years, like you should really get married. And that's really why people get married. And it's like, I don't want that. Like, I, I, I much prefer being like, this is why I want to do something. I'm going to make an active choice as opposed to just doing what everybody else does. And when you look at like what the average person is in the UK, it's overweight. Most marriages end in divorce. Most people have less than £2,000 of savings. Like if you don't want to be average, then you can't act like the average person, which to me means you have to actually start making choices instead of just following. That's what everybody does. Yeah. Well, do you want to be everybody? Which if you do, fine. And I'm not like, I genuinely probably sounds like I'm judging here. I'm not judging at all, but I want you to tell me that that's what you want, in which case absolutely continue going with the flow. If you don't want that, if you don't want to be average, you can't act average. But does that come from knowing and being clear on what your values are? Because I think I, know, I don't think many people know what they are or just don't know how to do it. Yeah, and I think that's a problem in itself, knowing what your values are. But then what I think is quite interesting is we judge other people based on their actions, thinking that their actions are in line with their values, right? Yeah. So you might do something and I'd be like, well, you've done that because you care about that. And I would just assume that, but actually you've done it because everybody else does it and you just thought it was the right thing and whatever. So we, we always assume that other people are in line with their values and acting in line with their values, but we don't like hold that same level to ourselves. And I think it's such an important thing. I think within our kind of circle within the fitness industry, we're like, oh yeah, of course you'd know your values and then you set your goals based on your values. But for a lot of people, it's like completely new territory. And I think a lot of people would make a a lot of different decisions and allocate their time in very different places if they were more in line with that. And like we were talking before we came on about how much I work and you were like, oh, I want to get up to about 20% more. And then I'm just like, I'm happy there because I want my life balance. And that's important to me. I'm very much aware that I work more than what most people do. That is actually in line with my values. Like I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm sacrificing for that. And I'm okay with that. And I think as long as you're aware of it and you're okay with it and you're making it, like I said, as a choice, instead of just like ending up somewhere, then like that's the life you want to live. And I, I genuinely think if you live a life in line with your values, you'll live a happy life and you won't have regrets. Yeah, but I I, I think sometimes, and I'm only talking from my own experience, it sometimes it takes something shit to happen in order for that kind of like flick of a switch or like burnout or some event to happen in your life for you to kind of actually take a step back and say, I actually need to start to change something, whether it's it's, otherwise it's going to keep happening. But Mm -hmm. it shouldn't have to come to that extreme for us to start living with the values of start living the life that we actually want to. But too many people want to go to that extreme to see how far they can push it just for like potentially social acceptance or to be loved, to be valued by others. But what about what you want? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people know what they want. They're like, oh, well, like my family, my brother, my, all my mates, blah, blah, blah. They got married. They've got a mortgage. That They've got a good job. So that's what I want. And a lot of the time 
Like it's not. And I don't want to just like plug myself here, but I did because I think this is so important. I made a journal. It's also as cheap as it can be on Amazon and all the proceeds go to charity. So I'm not trying to make money here. Right. But it does walk you through how to set your values, how to figure out what they are, how to set goals in line with them. And then there's like a kind of quick daily check-in of like, did I live today in line with my values? And like, as we were just talking, I'm like, like acting like I totally live in line with my values. I often don't, but because I check in on myself, I'm like, right, next time I should have said no to that extra work call. And I should have said yes to going and seeing my mates earlier because that's more in line with my values. Or I might have said, no, that was like actually working over doing that was in line with my values, right? But a lot of people don't think about those choices. And once you open your mind to it, you start seeing it in like everyday choices that you're making and how you're spending your time because like you only have so much time. Yeah, and I relate that kind of like, I'm going to put the link for the the journal into the show notes so people can click onto that because I've seen it. I've seen you put it up on two uh, stories and stuff before. Um, the fact it's for charity is kind of a more worth more than worthwhile cause on top of we're looking after your own mental health. Books, so you don't make very much. Like I think it's like three pounds a book that goes to charity. Uh, but like- Amazon, Amazon are crucifying people with books on, on, on it. Um, one of the things that you spoke about recently on, a, I think it was a post in January, I think it was in preparation for this, was we've been focusing on the wrong thing for fat loss. And I know there's kind of like, there's a couple of things coming out in the last kind of couple of weeks on diary of a CEO. They've had a couple, he's had a couple of people on talking about calories and all this kind of stuff. But I want, I want to let you know, I want to, for you to kind of talk about what, what you meant by that post, because I think a lot of people potentially it was eye catching, but maybe they were looking for an, expecting a different answer. Yeah. They're expecting to be like, it's carbohydrates or, <laughs> yeah. it's, chocolate or it's chocolate. So the point of that post was, I'd had a lot of feedback from clients who've done one of my programs, Commit to Six, and I noticed that all of it based around mood. So it was like my mood has improved. And it made me think that that actually is probably the key that drives all behaviours. So how much easier is it to take care of yourself, to exercise, to eat well when you're in a good mood? Like you don't you don't need motivation to do anything. You don't, you know, like when you when you feel good, it's actually really good, easy to take care of yourself. So then I was thinking, okay, well, actually, should we be flipping this round and be and thinking, what are the behaviors that are going to make me feel my best, which is a much nicer way than how most people think about dieting, which is how can I restrict myself as much as possible to create as big a deficit as possible? You know, it's like very much like reductionist, restriction, unenjoyable for a set period of time, blah, blah, blah. Whereas if you can think what behaviors would make me feel my best, then you'll find that it's much easier to then continue those behaviors. And as a byproduct of that, you'll lose weight and you will get significantly better results because you can actually stick to it and because you're actually enjoying it. Now, when you look at the behaviors that you know are going to make you feel good, it is the same behaviors as if you were dying or very similar, right? Like, can you get outside for a walk every day? Can you exercise every day or at least every other day? Can you eat enough protein? Because, hey, and like I even went into, I mean, this this bit of research is kind of extrapolated out by some people wrongly. So there are certain amino acids that you need to make certain um, chemicals in your brain that make you feel good. So like serotonin and dopamine. 
So you need those amino acids from protein, right? So people link eating protein to improve me. And there is a link, but most people like take that too far and they're like, well, protein means you'll be happier. And it's like, you'll saturate the benefit of that. Yeah. Probably with like 50 grams of protein a day. But the point is you want to get in some protein, right? Then gut microbiome has also been linked to mood. So that means lots of fruit and veg, lots of fiber in there, diverse um, selection of plant-based foods. So you're looking at all these things, you're like, actually, that's what I would be doing if I wanted to diet successfully in a maintainable way. But actually flipping it to like, screw dieting for now. I'm just going to do the things that I know will make me feel my best. And you will lose weight as a byproduct, but it's a much more enjoyable process. So that was what that post was about. But I think that's a, I think that's a really like unique way of kind of saying it because I think an awful lot of people when the mood goes they're kind of like well it's definitely motivation or I'm weak or I have no willpower or they start blaming or shaming themselves into change and then the narrative gets quite toxic quite quickly but if you actually say well what do I actually like doing well I like going for walks with friends so why don't you bring that into your life during the week or go for a coffee with them or have you got a dog or I want to play football with my kids bring that element of into it into your journey because otherwise because ultimately you couldn't be seen as a benchmark for your kids you're leading by example and what what you're gonna what you're doing is being mimicked whether you like it or not i've realized very recently that i am my father and it's a uh, it's not great it's quite a way yeah. it's quite a really I, mean, I think that with the mood thing as well you can't expect to always be in a good mood so it kind of like mood is linked to motivation obviously and it, annoyingly, and this is the hard part, the time it's most important to get outside for a walk, to eat well, to exercise, to do the things you know will increase your mood is when your mood is low. But when you're approaching at it from that standpoint, as opposed to like my motivation is low and I'm still trying to over-restrict myself to diet versus my motivation is low, but I know that these behaviors will mean that I that my mood is improved that's a very different like way of looking at it, even if on the outside it looks quite similar. So I think that's that's the point, is that that's the hard part. And then I kind of related this to, I don't know if you've heard of the theory of baseline happiness. Yeah. So for anyone who hasn't, and I might butcher this a little bit, but it's essentially really interesting that most of us have like a baseline happiness and no matter what happens to us, so like something awful, like someone you love dies, your baseline reduces, but it always comes back. So your your happiness reduces, but it always comes back to the baseline. Or something happens, like you get married and you have this increase in happiness, but it still comes back to the baseline. Kind of like an elastic band. Yeah. So you're always coming back. Um, but the theory behind this is, given that, what you really want to do, rather than like roll with these peaks and troughs, is increase that baseline. And that's what I see with these behaviors is like, I'm not saying that going exercising will have the same increase in happiness as like getting married. Right. But it'll increase your baseline. So you're going from like a lower baseline to a higher baseline, which means that in general, your mood is higher. And I was speaking to my flatmate about this because as I, was, I thought about it for a few days and I was like, I am very rarely, if ever in a bad mood, but that week I was in a bit of a bad mood. And I mentioned it to a few people. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just in like, I've got so much work on. I've got PMS. And I just like, this week's like not a good week. And they're like, if this is you in a bad mood, like, 
you know, like you're, you're still like absolutely buzzing and smiling and like to anybody else that would be a good mood. And that kind of made me realize as well that probably my baseline mood is elevated. And I think that's something that you can achieve from consistently doing these kind of behaviors. Well, I think that's a credit to you for being that because I've, I've listened to the podcast, the Unfiltered podcast with uh, Dr. Mike and Dan, and then I've listened to like other things that you've been on. It's like, is Emma ever in a bad mood? I'm kind of like, <laughs> she's always like, I know sometimes you can just turn it on for microphones and stuff like that. I know that happens, but like everything that you're consistent with what you're doing, you just seem to be like, as we spoke about earlier, living your values and living your best life. I know it's as cheesy as generic as that sounds, but it seems to be, it comes across is what I'm trying to say in a nice way. Um, you mentioned another thing called the three, one method on your post recently. And I think a lot of people are going to, get benefit from what the, what it is. So what is the 3-1 method and how, why is it, why may it be beneficial for some people? Okay, so I'm going to give you, I hope this doesn't um, negate it at all, but I've been speaking about this for years and maybe a couple of weeks ago, I decided to name it and that makes such a difference. So here's a like tip, like coaching tip for you is name stuff, honestly. And when I speak to clients as well, Normally it's the things that I've named. So I also use something called like puck yes or no. Everyone remembers it. Or I always use the same wording, like imperfect action. And it's like, everyone remembers that. So yeah, I would, I just decided this is such a good way of eating. I'm just going to name it because I know that people will remember it because I've named it, but it's quite a simple concept. It's essentially having set meals during the day and then more flexibility in the evening And the reason that that works is that the vast majority of people eat relatively on their own during the day or they're busy or they're working or they're doing stuff. So actually having some routine is very useful. It also reduces decision fatigue and like increases concentration, right? So I eat generally at about the same time, roughly the same meals during the day. And then in the evening, I'll have a different meal. I might have it with my flatmate. I might go out with mates. I might do something else. A lot of people will eat with their families in the evening. So having a bit more flexibility in the evening is really useful. And the benefit of the structure in the day is like, let's say one of my clients and it's they've got 1600 calories because they're trying to lose some fat. You might have 1000 calories during the day and you'd make sure you hit your protein, you've got your fruit and veg in, you've got enough fiber in there, you've hit all your targets and then in the evening, you can chill out a little bit and be like, I know that this meal that maybe my husband is cooking me is roughly between five and 600 calories. I don't need to get behind him and start trying to track stuff on my fitness pal. I'm just going to be like a little bit more chill about it, enjoy it and move on. It works incredibly well, especially if you're someone who doesn't really want to track. And if you're eating roughly the same meals every day during the day, you don't need to track those meals like you track it once. So, you know, yeah, cool. That's roughly a thousand calories for my breakfast, lunch and a snack. Then I've got six, 600 to, to play with in the evening. Like it, it's pretty simple. It works extremely well. Um, and a lot of people don't want to track and I'm certainly one of those people. And yeah. one of the negatives is this is why I keep being quite particular with almost the same meals right it's actually eating exactly the same thing every day one gets a bit boring and two like variety is so important so as an example you might be like normally I have 
a shake and a banana in the morning, but some weeks I have a shake and an apple and a satsuma instead, right? So you're getting like the variety of food in there, or normally you have some kind of soup and a protein sauce at at lunchtime, but some days you'll have carrot soup, some days you'll have mixed vegetable soup, whatever. Like, so you're getting some variety, but you would base it around the same kind of thing. So you don't have this decision fatigue and so that you know that you're always hitting roughly the target that you want to hit. And then you've got more flexibility in the evening. And most people eat majority of the same foods, like Monday to Thursday and then Friday, Saturday and Sunday, the little, the, that kind of variety comes in. Variety is important. Like it, it's hugely important. Like I don't overly enjoy cooking. I see cooking as a way to feed myself. I don't see cooking as a way to actually, I mean, this is going to sound really bad, enjoy food. <laughs> But like it, the food is quite basic. It's quite bland, but it hits all the macros. It hits whatever it may be, or, and it, and it works. But I know other people are kind of constantly looking for new recipes on good food recipes or Joe Wicks meal plans or whatever it may be. But they get that kind of like get overwhelmed by what they should be doing. So I really like that kind of idea of kind of trying to keep it as basic as possible. Maybe the same breakfast, maybe two or three meals out that are a little bit different for each week or try one recipe in each week with the family or whatever it may be. Um, so I, I really like that three, one method. And it's, it's literally what someone else said about two weeks ago on the podcast, but you just put a name on it about kind exactly. of decision fatigue. Yeah. It's like it's still having the flexibility in the evening because I think one of the problems with flexible dieting is it's too flexible for people. And one of the benefits of things like meal plans or very rigid dieting is that there is structure there and there is a bit of discipline there. And this kind of gives you both. It's like you have the structure during the day, but you also have the flexibility and the flexibility is so important for like relationship with food, enjoyment of food, like eating with your family, not feeling like you have to miss out miss out on social occasions. So yeah, I think it nicely gets the benefit of both things. Yeah, I think that flexibility thing can be kind of taking the pace out of a bit much by some people, but somewhere probably in the middle. And it depends what flexibility means to the person as well. One of the big things you're kind of talking about at the minute is in relation to kind of why it might be harder for kind of smaller women to lose weight and what they can do because this can be frustrating because the message that might be out there for some people is, well, 1,200 calories are bad or 1,300 calories are bad. But then you're kind of like, well, I'm small. I'm like five foot one or five foot. Well, I'm not, but I'm talking about it as if I'm the person. Uh, but they're five foot one or four eleven or whatever it may be. And they're kind of like, well, I'm, I'm just fed up with with having to have such low calories. But why is it actually harder for, for smaller women and smaller people to... To, to diet and lose weight and what can they actually do to kind of get around this? Yeah. I I mean, I talk about this quite a lot, especially recently, and I didn't think it would resonate so much with people. And there are a few misconceptions. So it's less about your height and more about your size. As in, if you were 80 kilograms at five foot, then you're probably burning about the same calories as someone who's taller, but also weighs 80 kilograms. The point is to be in a healthy weight range, you would need to lose more weight than the person who's taller, right? I know people don't like BMI, but actually BMI plus a bit of common sense, you know, and, and realistically the people complaining about BMI aren't rugby players or like yeah, wrestlers or the rock. 
Like, yes, some people are overweight because they've got a lot of muscle mass, but it's not you, right? It's not me either, right? So it's like, have a bit of common sense with it. Um, But being in a healthy BMI range for most people is a really good idea. And then, like I said, there will be some caveats to that. But essentially, if you are shorter, you'll have to be lighter to be in a healthy BMI range, which is why you need less calories because your total body mass is related to your energy expenditure. So a couple of things make up energy expenditure, but primarily your basal metabolic rate, which is primarily related to how much body mass you have. So like your weight and then how much you move. So whether that's exercise or steps, and then there's a small amount like thermic effect of food, which isn't really that relevant. Um, And the reason it's so much harder for smaller women is because we all live in the same environment and calories are so high everywhere, right? So even like, even if we both went to Nando's together and let's say we both did 10,000 steps and we both go to the gym three times a week, that will probably be, I don't know, maybe like a quarter of your energy needs but it will be like maybe half of mine, depending on the choices that we make, right? So it's going to have a far bigger impact on my diet than it is on your diet. And that's why it's so much harder for smaller people because it's not like you go in and they're like, oh, you're quite small. Your energy expenditure is probably only 1600 calories. Here's a smaller portion. That doesn't happen. And your hunger isn't that well regulated to your needs. Like there is a correlation. Like I'm sure that you would be more hungry than I would because your needs are higher, but not like it doesn't correlate that well. So it's not like smaller people are just habitually so much less hungry that they they just like, yeah, like I say, habitually wouldn't eat as much. Uh, and then you've got to look at food choices that we have now. Like they're so full of calories, but they're also not very satiating. And I did think about this in quite a lot of depth. And I, I assume that, let's say all we ate was like relatively bland foods. So like go back a couple hundred years, like we'd have like maybe some potatoes, a bit of veg and like a small amount of meat. I imagine that most people probably wouldn't overeat in that environment, but now it's like, it's hard not to overeat. Even if you think you're making relatively good choices and the awareness that people have now because of calories on menus, you're like, wow, even if I pick the smaller, you know, like the, lowest calorie dish here is still half my calorie intake for the day so that means I have to be very careful outside of that if I still want to you know remain anywhere near and I'm not even just talking about I'm not talking about fat loss here like different if you want to create a deficit I just mean to maintain my current weight so you do have to be a bit more aware and I think the other thing that's kind of unhelpful is like bigger people or like personal trainers who move a lot and have high energy expenditure just being like guys flexible dieting is easy like I went out for Anandos and then I had this and this and this and I'm still you know staying the same weight and you're like yeah because your expenditure is like 2500 calories it isn't the same for other people and they can't eat the same amount and then when you think okay well there's two sides of the energy balance equation can we ramp up the expenditure that will ramp up your hunger as well and depending on how you personally respond to exercise and like cardio-based work, some people's energy expenditure goes really high. Like I have clients that start marathon training and put on weight because yeah. they're- Running's a big one because the appetite increases so much. Yeah. I've noticed that myself since going back playing football. Yeah. Appetite's gone through the roof. 
some people have the exact opposite effects and it suppresses appetite. Yeah. And this is what's quite interesting. So when you look at the research, because of that difference in individuals, like some people hunger increases, some people it reduces, on average, nothing happens, right? So for quite a long time, like when you were looking at like the data on this, people would just be like, yeah, exercise doesn't have much of an effect on hunger. It does. It's just, it depends on the kind of person that you are. Like it depends on how you respond. So for example, probably unsurprising because I stay relatively lean, but um, certain forms of exercise don't have much impact on my hunger. So like gym workouts, cardio seems to, like you were saying about football, like if I go, if I start running, like my hunger levels ramp up. But then that becomes hard because if you think, right, I'm a small woman, I want to be able to eat more. So I'm going to start expending more energy. I'll increase my steps. I'll go for a bit of a run, I don't know, a couple of times a week. And then what you experience is increased hunger. It can become even harder to stick to your calories. So it is finding this balance and it's finding what works for you as an individual. Because for some people that might work really well. And they're like, yeah, go for a run a few times a week, bumps up my calories, have a couple of meals out, suits me really well. Other people will be like, wow, I am ravenous after a a run. And then I end up eating way over my calories and way more than I expended during that exercise. Particularly if someone's going from zero to starting something and going for three or four runs, and they're kind of like, they're sedentary, their appetite may be a little bit less anyway because they're sedentary. But then they're going and kind of potentially going out for, I don't know, five, 10, 15K runs. And they know their appetite's like, well, what am I doing wrong here? Why am I eating back the calories that I'm potentially burning? And that kind of like, that can become a little bit of a, um a little bit frustrating for the individual as well it's like well we'll i don't think an awful lot of us know how to actually eat to hunger anyway or eat to fullness and it's a unique skill yeah it is a unique skill it requires Um, a lot of self-awareness and knowledge and even then like because of the differences and because you know like hunger is impacted by so many things but also genetics so we know that some people are more hungry than others like especially in relation to the fto gene like you will just be slightly more hungry, which means that in the same environment, you would eat more than somebody else. So even telling people just listen to your hunger, even if you could listen to your hunger, I still don't think is useful advice. Um, And then on top of that, what you were just saying, like people have Fitbits now, right? Which will tell them you've burnt 600 calories and actually you haven't burnt 600 calories. Or I think generally we overestimate what we would expend in the gym so you're like oh i did a class today so i'll i'll have a muffin with my coffee and it's like no that that like coffee and muffin is significantly more than you will have expended in that class now that's not i'm not i hate when people extrapolate this and kind of say well then we shouldn't exercise no there are to exercise independently of of losing weight or like expending any calories but yeah, you just have to be aware that you don't want to assume that you've expended a load of calories and then eat them back and and not get the results that you want. I got one of those um, stat sport things and the things that professional footballers wear the vests for uh, for football to kind of see how little I run on a football pitch. Um, and I had it on for one of the matches after Christmas and I got it was like, I ended up like 10 and a half kilometers for a 19 minute match, but I was pleasant or not, not ple- pleasantly. I had a look at the calories burnt and I was kind of like, this this can't be right. Like I burnt so little. I was like 550. I was like, is that all for 10 and a half kilometers? 
And I was like, you can see the total sprints and everything. Like, this can't be right. But you can get bogged down that information too much. Uh, but I came home and I was absolutely starving. Like, absolutely. I literally wanted to eat the wall. Yeah. Um, and even like knowing, I don't know if you find this in the winter, but I'm so much more hungry. I can't keep myself. And also, I'm because it's, you're also finding it harder to drink water. Yeah. And you're kind of like, because you're kind of like, obviously, some people can be struggling with kind of like the cold as well. You're kind of like shaking that a little bit more. And you're looking for comfort that a little bit more. So the appetite may go up and you're kind of like, you're looking for that a little bit more warmth. So, yeah, I think that that's definitely a thing. I de- I've definitely noticed that since kind of November, December, up until around now, it's kind of like, it's taking a little bit more to kind of get that nourishment or hunger topped up um and i think a lot of people would kind of be like that actually makes so much more sense um the last question i'm going to ask you because i know we are tied for time is what does successful dieting mean to you or look like to you because i think this is kind of one of these big topics that a lot of people can kind of can kind of say well i've lost 20 kg and i've lost a one so that was successful but i've ended up putting 25 kg back on and they can define, they may define that as successful diet. There's nothing wrong with that. But for you, what does successful dieting mean or look like for you? I mean, I've got two answers to this. So I think it depends on the individual and what they're looking for to an extent. And I think we can be a little bit preachy with like, this is what this should look like. And even what you were saying about like 1200 calories is too low. And like, well, it's not for some people. And hey, some people do want this kind of training or this kind of diet. And like, as long as, back to what I was saying about the choices that you'll make, you're making informed choices based on what's most important to you. Fine. Now I'm going to give not what my definition of successful dieting is, but what the, like the research looks at, which is six months to a year of weight maintenance. So back to what you were saying about like, Oh yeah, I lost 20 pounds, but then I put it back on. That's not a successful diet. And I agree with you. A lot of people do say that they're like, I did really well cutting out all carbs and I lost all this weight well, if you put it back on, like, it's not, I'm not saying it wasn't impressive at the time, but it's like, it's not been sustainable for you. So we need to figure out how we can sustain that. And there are so many ways to do it. I think people get stuck with what has previously worked or what they would say has previously quote unquote worked as in when they previously lost weight and it's always been carbs. Well, that was just one way of creating a deficit, which obviously wasn't sustainable for you. So how about we find another way of creating that deficit but yeah I think most people don't focus enough on maintenance which to me is the most important thing which is why it really matters how you get there I think a lot of people think they just want to lose weight but actually how you lose weight is so 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 important so how are you achieving a deficit is that maintainable for you is it enjoyable for you those are the kind of things and so much of that is intent like it's often not the actions it's more why you're doing them so like you might go for a run every single morning and if you get up and you force yourself to go for a run because you really want to lose weight and you hate the way that your body looks that is only going to like last a finite amount of time because it's taking so much like negative effort from you versus if you go for a run every morning because you choose to and you want to and you know it makes you feel good, the action on the outside looks exactly the same, but your intent is different. Same with like, oh, I'm I'm choosing not to eat chocolate at the moment because it's not in line with my goals versus I am telling myself I can't have it and restricting myself. 
Yeah, the language is different. The intent, yeah, I you can you can hear the difference in what you're saying. Is like I can't have this. It was like, well, I get to have it, but I just not aligning with what I want to do right now. That's completely different from I'm going to restrict to the mass point of destruction, which yeah. what a lot of people try to do. That line that you just said, essentially, like I can eat whatever I want whenever I want, but I am making a conscious choice to eat in line with my goals. That's the mindset of successful dieting. Like I've never really come across anyone who has successfully lost weight with a good relationship with food who isn't approaching it like that like yeah i can do whatever i want but i'm choosing this because i want this outcome fine completely different than saying i can't have that i'm on a diet i can't do this i'm on a diet i can't like that's restriction versus a choice and what's most interesting to people is like the action might look exactly the same on paper but it's how you're like it's your mindset behind it that makes it sustainable or not i think well that's a completely different topic of the whole improving the relationship before with food before kind of dieting that's a very different topic completely and that could go off on a rant but emma there's so much there i think there's going to be an awful lot of people i probably would listen back to this a couple of times for people to kind of listen to because there's so much in there so thank you again for for coming on where can people find out about you on social media and I'll put in the links for the journal and kind of coaching for yourself and EC method and everything. So where can people find out about you on social media? Um, firstly, thanks so much for having me and I really enjoyed this and I really hope it's been useful and you can find me at ESG fitness. Awesome. Emma, thank you so much for coming on. No problem. What an unbelievable episode with Emma. So thank you so much for listening to the episode with Emma Story Gordon. I really hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, please do share it up on your stories. Leave a review up on iTunes, up on Spotify. The more reviews, the higher it goes up in the charts. The higher it goes up in the charts, the more people can hear it, the more people can listen to it. And also that the bigger, the better the guests I can continue to grow and continue to have an evidence-based approach that kind of goes out there breaking that no-nonsense approach to nutrition and training so hope you guys enjoyed the episode with emma story gordon and i will talk to you soon thank you so much for listening